are you arguing then that strict scrutiny should apply here? No, the normal scrutiny should apply. Welcome to A Rational Basis Review, the podcast that introduces, analyzes, and contextualizes some of the foundational constitutional law cases and issues that form the basis of the first-year constitutional law curriculum. Just because constitutional law might seem irrational doesn't mean you can't or don't understand it. We're here to help with that. We're your hosts. I'm Leah Littman, an assistant professor of law at the University of Michigan. And I'm Melissa Murray. I'm the Frederick I. and Grace Stokes professor of law at NYU. And I'm Kate Shaw. I'm a professor of law at Cardozo Law School in New York City. So today we're going to talk about a topic of increasing importance, which is the powers of and constraints upon the president. So this is a huge topic, and we're just going to scratch the surface today. But we're going to do that by talking about one big case, Youngstown Sheet and Tube Company versus Sawyer, which is sometimes known as the Steel Seizure Case. And we're then going to talk briefly about a couple of cases that involve constraints upon presidential power. So starting with Youngstown. Like Heller, we think Youngstown should be studied both because of the substantive law it makes, but also because the different opinions represent different and important visions of how to approach the task of constitutional interpretation. So to frame things, let's talk about Article 2. So Article 2 creates the office of the president, and it's very lean compared to Article 1, uh, which creates and empowers the Congress. So Article 2 creates a single president. There had been some debates in the Constitutional Convention about making it a plural executive. That didn't win the day, and we just have one president. The article also provides that the executive power shall be vested in the president. Much of Article 2 is actually consumed with our bizarre system of selecting the president, which is known as the Electoral College. Then there are some specific presidential powers identified, like the power to pardon, to make treaties, to nominate judges and ambassadors and other officials. Article 2 makes the president the commander-in-chief of the military. Then there are a few other provisions, but that is essentially it. So when the Constitution creates presidential authorities, there are a lot of important interpretive questions. Um, but what we are going to be primarily focused on is what if a particular power isn't explicitly identified in the Constitution? Sometimes statutes will also give the president particular authorities. There will then be questions about whether those statutes are constitutional. But sometimes there will also be no specific statutory authority. When there's no specific statutory authority and no clear constitutional authority, the president might still want to take some action. And the question we're focused on is how should we go about deciding if the president has power? These are questions that the framers debated, in particular Alexander Hamilton and James Madison. Alexander Hamilton believed that the president had expansive inherent powers, powers that were not explicitly listed in Article 2. Hamilton believed that presidents had those inherent powers based on a comparison between Article 1 and Article 2. He says, look at the language beginning, Article 1, and the language beginning, Article 2. Article 1 refers to powers here and granted, whereas Article 2 speaks generally of the executive power. So the Hamilton position says that Congress is limited to a specific set of powers that have been granted in the Constitution, but the president, by contrast, has inherent executive powers that are not necessarily enumerated in Article 2. James Madison, however, disagreed with this view. He thought that the concept of inherent powers was inconsistent with the idea of a written constitution. 
Article 2, he explained, simply determines whether the executive is singular or plural, and it gives the executive a name, president. Okay, so the most important case on the scope of presidential authority is, as we mentioned, Youngstown Sheet and Tube Company. So what is the basic question at the heart of the case? It's really about the lawfulness of an executive order issued by President Truman to the Secretary of Commerce, ordering the secretary to take control of most of the nation's steel mills and to keep them running. So what's the background on Youngstown? Why did Truman issue this order purporting to seize the steel mills in the first place? So Truman had commenced what had become the Korean War without ever asking Congress for an official declaration of war. Let's bracket that because we're not going to talk about the war powers here. But in any event, with regard to the promulgation of that war, in 1951, a labor dispute arose between the United Steelworkers and the steel industry. Negotiations stalled and the steelworkers threatened to strike. A few hours before the strike was about to begin, Truman issued this executive order explaining that national defense, the promulgation of the Korean War, required that he seize the steel mills because the steel was critical to many or most military supplies, weapons, tanks, ammunition, all of that. He then had the secretary issue orders taking possession of the steel plants. Truman reported his action to Congress twice, once immediately and once almost two weeks later. Congress took no action. So the steel plants continue their operation, basically business as usual, with an American flag flying in each plant and posted notice of federal possession. But they file suit, alleging that the president had no statutory authorization and therefore no constitutional power to seize these steel mills. The government had argued that a strike would so endanger the national well-being that the president had the inherent constitutional authority to seize the steel mills. So the government lost in the district court. The district court issued a preliminary injunction restraining the secretary from complying with the executive order. In the district court, the government actually made some extraordinarily broad arguments, basically that the Constitution limited and enumerated the powers of Congress and also of the courts, but not the president. The president alone had virtually limitless powers. The administration tried to walk back some of the most expansive arguments before the Supreme Court, but it was at that point very difficult to unring the bell. So the Supreme Court decides the case and the president loses. That's the bottom line, and it's an important one. Justice Hugo Black wrote the opinion of the court, although the other five justices who made up the 6-3 majority each wrote a separate concurring opinion. So this is one of those cases where Black's opinion is really no more important than any other. And in fact, it is Justice Robert Jackson's concurrence that has become by far the most famous output from this case. But let's start with Justice Black's opinion. So he asks, where must presidential authority come from? And he gives two answers, either from statute or from the Constitution. So first, you know, he asks whether the president has any statutory authority to order this steel seizure and finds that there was no statutory basis. Indeed, as he points out, Congress had actually rejected a provision for emergency seizure authority when it passed the Taft-Hartley Labor Relations Act in 1947. There was an amendment that would have granted the president this precise power that was considered and rejected in the House. Um, there is a statutory mechanism for doing something like what the president did here, the Defense Production Act, but there were particular statutory requirements that that route entailed, and the president had actually declined to utilize these alternative statutory procedures under the Defense Production Act, judging them to be too cumbersome and time-consuming. Okay, so Black says there is no statutory basis, and actually he says the government isn't even really arguing that there is one. So the source of the president's power has to be the Constitution. So what are the candidates under the Constitution? Could be the president vesting clause, could be the commander-in-chief clause, could be the take-care clause. So Justice Black rejects the commander-in-chief clause as a basis for Truman's executive 
border. He says, at least outside what could reasonably be regarded as a theater of war, the seizure of private property is a job for the nation's lawmakers, not military authorities. So theater of war just does not include private property in labor disputes. So with respect to the Article 2 vesting clause, Black's view is that the president's power to see that the laws are faithfully executed refutes the idea that he can be a lawmaker. That is, execute is very different from making law. The Constitution is very clear about who makes the laws. It's Congress. And what Truman has done in seizing the steel mills is actually lawmaking. To underscore the point, he points to the Necessary and Proper Clause, which is one of Congress's enumerated powers. There is no executive analog for this broad power, and that's meaningful because the president does not have unlimited inherent authority. If there were an executive Necessary and Proper Clause, perhaps things would be different. But looking at the executive order, it simply states reasons and proclaims policies as rules with the force of law. It directs government officials to do more than simply carry them out. This is not execution, according to Black. It's basically legislating. Now, Justice Black also asks, have previous precedents done this thing? Perhaps, um, but that doesn't negate in Justice Black's view that this sort of thing is for Congress alone. While Congress could surely do this thing, seizing the steel mills, that doesn't mean the president could because it's not consistent with the constitutional order. Justice Black's opinion is pretty formalistic. That is, it asks, what is the president doing and whether the president's actions can be characterized as fitting within the categories of powers that the Constitution gives to the president? Okay, so let's move on to the Jackson concurrence, which, as we said at the outset, is actually the most famous writing in the case. Um, So a little bit of background. Justice Jackson had previously been President Roosevelt's solicitor general and attorney general. um, So he was well-versed in arguments in defense of broad executive power. And he actually opens his opinion by noting in this sort of self-aware way uh, that anyone who has ever served a president knows that expansive executive power is both very attractive to the executive branch and also quite dangerous. Um, He's also realistic about some of the challenges of constitutional interpretation. He makes explicit note of the difficulty of taking this 18th century document and translating and applying it to 20th century problems and disputes. So he makes a couple of broad observations about what it is the Constitution does, that it diffuses power to better protect liberty, um, but that these dispersed powers are exercised by government institutions that are integrated and often need to exercise an array of powers. Um, so where Black's opinion is extremely formalistic in you know, describing this bright line between execution and legislation, Jackson suggests that the boundaries are fuzzier and that there are lots of contradictions and that separateness and independence coexist in our constitutional scheme, and so do autonomy and reciprocity. So he basically says maybe a helpful way to think about this is to group situations in which presidents try to exercise some authority and to kind of identify features that will help us to determine their lawfulness. So this is the very famous tripartite framework that he sets forth in his opinion. And it's arguably the most important and famous part of the Youngstown opinion. So this first zone of authority that Jackson identifies is when the president is acting with the express or implied agreement of Congress. In those situations, presidents have the most authority because it includes all of the powers that Congress has delegated to the president, as well as his own inherent powers, his authorities at its maximum. The third category that Justice Jackson identifies is the opposite side of the spectrum. When the president acts in defiance of implicit or explicit disapproval of Congress, in those circumstances, he has the least power. He has only his own constitutional power to bolster his decisions. He has none of the constitutional powers that Congress might possess because Congress has explicitly or implicitly not delegated those powers to him. 
The area that's received the most attention though in this tripartite framework is the one that occurs in the middle, the famous zone of twilight. This second zone notes that the areas where Congress is silent and the president only has his own independent powers as identified in Article 2, whether implicitly or expressly, there is a zone of twilight in which the president and Congress may have concurrent authority or where the distribution of authority may be uncertain. In these situations, unilateral presidential action might be validated by the imperative of events, but there is no neat formulation that's going to give us answers. And what's notable about this tripartite framework is that at both ends of this spectrum, one and three, it's pretty easy to figure out when you're in those zones. It's really this section in zone two that is the difficult place to determine and where most of the cases are going to fall. Right. And, and as Melissa's description, I think, makes clear, you know, this is a very pragmatic and functional approach as compared to Black's formalism. OK, so where are we here? We're clearly not in the first category. There is no explicit or implicit authorization. Um, you know, it's also not really a case that can be analyzed under the flexible tests available in the intermediate category. Why not? According to Jackson, right, Congress has acted on the topic of seizures of private property. It has enacted statutory provisions governing seizures of private property, three different statutes, one regarding seizures of plants that fail to comply with certain orders, one on condemnation of certain facilities, including through eminent domain, another regarding responding to labor stoppages that impact the general economy. None of those statutes authorizes this kind of seizure. So we're in the third category, where the president has acted contrary to the express or implied will of Congress. In that category, all we have, all the president has, is what the Constitution gives to the president alone. So this would have to be in the president's domain and beyond the powers of Congress. And here, Justice Jackson ticks through the same constitutional provisions as Justice Black, using a quite similar analysis and similarly finds that none of the provisions justify Truman's seizure of the mills. So one more opinion is worth mentioning, and that's Justice Frankfurter's opinion. So Frankfurter also distances himself from the kind of formal absolutism of Black, finding the area more complicated and flexible than may appear from Black's opinion. He also seems to reject Jackson's three-part framework as maybe too categorical. He thinks the court should say no more than is necessary to decide this case. And for him, it comes down to the president asserting a power that Congress has refused to give him and that previous presidents have not routinely exercised. So the most famous piece of the Frankfurter opinion talks about historical practice and uses the term historical gloss. He basically says that when there is an unbroken practice in which multiple branches have acquiesced, where the president has exercised certain authorities and Congress has not objected or has affirmatively um, accepted the exercise of that authority, that essentially writes a gloss on the Constitution. It becomes part of the meaning of the Constitution. But in fact, there is no such history here. So that kind of analysis can't justify what Truman has done. So briefly, there's a dissent from Chief Justice Vinson, and this dissent believes that the action in seizing the steel mills was lawful, and specifically that it lies in this sort of twilight zone that Jackson had articulated. And they're really talking about the need for the executive to move quickly and nimbly in circumstances that require immediate action. And Vincent notes that Congress is by design a sclerotic, slow-moving, deliberative body, whereas the president, by contrast, is meant to be able to move with more action. Of course, 
There's also the fear, though, and I think Frankfurter's um, opinion raises this, that when you have an executive that does move fast, that can be problematic as well. And they don't say this explicitly, but it is definitely in the rearview mirror in Youngstown. Um, they have just come out of World War II, where they've seen the rise of authoritarian governments in Germany and Italy. And there's a fear that sometimes a charismatic and swiftly moving executive can perhaps overrule democratic power by overruling a Congress. Congress and other elected representative instruments. So that's important context, absolutely. You know, so so there are both more opinions in this case and a lot of other big important executive power cases. But for today's episode, we're now just going to talk about a couple of cases that involve types of checks on the president. So subjecting the president to certain kinds of ordinary judicial process. United States versus Nixon arose out of the break-in at the Democratic National Committee offices at the Watergate Hotel. So the break-in happened in 1972, and over the course of the ensuing uh, nearly two years, investigators Investigations, both by special prosecutors and by Congress, uh, increasingly revealed connections between the burglars and both the Nixon presidential campaign and the Nixon White House. The investigations by the special prosecutor and the congressional committees were happening in parallel. And after a White House aide revealed during testimony that there was a recording system in the Oval Office, the special prosecutor's office began pursuing some of these recordings. Nixon, obviously not wanting to let the tapes get out, fired the first special prosecutor, Archibald Cox, but under pressure allowed for the appointment of a second special prosecutor, Leon Jaworski. Jaworski continued the investigation. In March of 1974, Jaworski indicted seven of the president's former aides and got the grand jury to name Nixon as an unindicted co-conspirator. That sounds familiar. And in April of 1974, Jaworski issued a subpoena for the records and tapes of certain specified conversations between the president and various aides. The president unsuccessfully resisted the subpoenas, maintaining that confidential presidential communications were protected by executive privilege and that the separation of powers precluded judicial review of a president's claim of privilege. The Supreme Court unanimously ruled against the president, first rejecting the president's request to stay out of the case, reminding Nixon of Marbury versus Madison. The court went on then to agree that there did exist such a thing as executive privilege, which the court had never previously recognized, but concluded that this privilege was not absolute, and that in this case, where there was a subpoena and a criminal trial where the president didn't allege any need to withhold these materials in order to protect military or diplomatic or sensitive national security secrets, the privilege had to yield to the need for this information. So, Bottom line is, yes, the executive privilege exists. This is a presidential power. It's not in the Constitution, but it is a real power the president possesses. But it's not absolute. And that here, the president's generalized interest in confidentiality wasn't sufficient. One note is there was initially some fear about whether Nixon would comply with this order, but he did. He released 64 tapes about a week after the decision and four days later resigned from the office of the presidency facing certain impeachment. Um, so another case on checks on the presidency was Clinton versus Jones from 1997. Uh, this case was a sexual harassment case against a sitting president, Bill Clinton, by Arkansas State employee Paula Jones, who alleged that Bill Clinton had made really vile sexual advances toward her when he was the governor of Arkansas. Clinton argued that the Constitution required federal courts to defer this kind of civil litigation against the president until the end of the president's term in office. And in an opinion that, like Nixon, was unanimous, the court ruled against Clinton, holding that the cases conferring immunity for official acts had no application in a case involving conduct that was private, unofficial, and pre-presidential, so that here Jones was entitled to move forward with her suit even while Clinton was in office. 
And there's an addition to the pantheon of these cases just in the last term, um, Trump versus Vance. We spent a lot of time on that case as it was being argued and decided. And so you can hear lots more on our regular podcast, Strict Scrutiny, if you're so interested. But that is all we have time for on this episode. Thanks to our producer, Melody Rowell. Thanks to Gabriel Kahane for our music. If you'd like to learn more about current issues in the Supreme Court, check out our Supreme Court-focused podcast, Strict Scrutiny. Strict Scrutiny.